Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. You know, cannabis has a very special responsibility when it comes to social justice because cannabis has a very special history. To quote the Leafly Report on Social Equity, Seeds of Change, Strategies to Create an, uh, an Equitable Cannabis Industry, it is disingenuous to legalize cannabis and pretend that people of all races enjoy access to the opportunity offered by this new industry. Eight decades of prohibition have burdened people of color with targeted policing, police targeted policing, arrests, and criminal records. In the present, venture capitalists and other investors who are overwhelmingly white often ignore or shun or dismiss pitches from entrepreneurs of color. To make progress in the future, we're going to have to examine where and how to do this better. No ifs, ands, or buts. And my guest today is a New York and California licensed attorney. And he is here to talk to me today about where the industry is going and when it comes to social equity. Josiah Young, welcome to Let's Be Blunt with Montel, sir. Uh, Mr. Williams, thank you so much for having me on today. I want to especially start off by saying, you know, salute to you as a legend uh, for obviously your storied career in daytime television, but also your fight, you know, dealing with your condition with MS and then the kind of becoming the face of that. And, you know, incorporating cannabis, I think you're very bold, very brave, and you're having very much needed conversations. I had the chance to check out a few of them. You're the man. Thank you so much, sir. Well, look, I mean, why don't you, let's start by telling some people a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to college? Absolutely. I grew up outside of D.C., uh, born in New York, but kind of raised in Silver Spring, Maryland. I'm a Baltimore uh, boy. A Baltimore boy. So we, we got Maryland in the building. Yeah. Uh, you know, did my formative years there and went off to college. I graduated in college from uh, Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. So I had that experience of the black college experience at our you know, story, dear old Morehouse. From there, I was back to D.C. for law school. Uh, and after law school, I you know, kind of made my way around the legal industry, working at a few law firms, you know, get, gaining various experiences. And now I'm in private practice in, in my own shop uh, based in Sacramento, California. But now, what what made you choose? You didn't start off in the legal profession working in cannabis. What made you decide to turn your attention to the cannabis industry? You know, it was it was a confluence of, of a lot of good things happening at one time. Cannabis is something that I've been familiar with all throughout that high school, college, you know, uh, uh, in, in after college experience. Uh, in 2018, or uh, I believe it was 2016, is when the voters of California decided, hey, you know what, we're going to start legalizing this thing. I was working in a law firm and they sat me down and they were like, as soon as the law passed, they were like, hey, would you like to start becoming an expert on this? Would you like to go and talk to some of our city clients? It was a primarily a municipal firm, which is big to understand in the cannabis game. A lot of the action is happening at the local level. So I began getting my chops advising uh, local cities and state uh, counties about how to really regulate this program. From there, it brought me into helping private businesses figure out how to regulate it. And from there, I got involved in how do we help the minority community, this community that we're develop, you know, developing programs for and devoting our attention to, how do we help them into the industry? And when you started looking at it from that perspective, um, and some things were glaringly you know, jumped out at you, did it not? Absolutely. They're, they're still glaring at me uh, on a day to day basis. So, you know, it's been kind of an issue that we've seen since the development of uh, recreational cannabis in California. When you look at New York, as you mentioned, where I'm also barred and licensed to practice, 
you know, 50% of the licenses are supposed to go to these social equity applicants. In the legislation, in the, the drafted law that was written, it specifically says that to remedy the harms of the past, we've got to address these issues for the minority communities now. So it's something that is definitely getting the requisite attention, but the proof is always in the pudding, right? We have to see the rubber meet the road and see uh, if there really are going to be benefits to these communities. Well, uh, let's, let's, let's jump aboard and take New York, for example. You just brought them up. So now is New York working towards trying to ensure equitable participation? Absolutely. And the concept is good. Let me say overall, if there was one takeaway I had, I think that the, the concept of social equity in the cannabis space or any other industries for that matter is a very valuable and a very positive step. Uh, but it's always going to know the devil's in the details, as they say. And we have to figure out how we can actually empower these people. And by these people, I mean these minority cannabis operators to be successful. And the other end of that token is you still have to balance it with just good old fashioned business, right? This is not a handout. You can't necessarily, you know, how do you get venture capitalists to come in and give money and then not expect a, a relative rate on return, return on investment? But then again, in some ways, I mean, in some of the programs in Florida and other places, you know, they have written in their legislation equity programs. But that just means find a black person, put their name on the application when you submit it in, and we'll give them 5% and see you later. We'll take care of this, right? So how do we actually approach this from the standpoint of understanding that equity in itself is good for the business? Good for yeah, the- well, a lot of times it's highly predatory when you're talking about that you find a, find a, you know, find somebody who checks the boxes, find somebody who's from the, the right neighborhood, find somebody who has been arrested for cannabis, but is still eligible for a license, and then we'll throw them their 5% and, you know, get them out of the way. And it's very predatory in that way. So one of the ways that we can continue to, you know, help those communities is to advocate for overall settling of the regulations in the industry, right? To be fair to all players at the table, this is a brand new nascent industry. There's a long history of criminalization. There's a long history of you know, law enforcement uh, finding ways to arrest people and, and criminalize cannabis. It's a very new history, very recent history in terms of giving these people the opportunity to participate in the industry. So we do have to continue to allow the industry and the regulations to settle. For example, in New York, they haven't even issued the substantive regulations, right? The state has passed the law. Cannabis is legal as of today. How do you get those licenses? How are those social equity applicants going to be prioritized? The answer is to be determined. So as we're having these conversations determining it, it's people like you who are championing these issues. It's me and my advocacy work, but it's also the will of the people. You know, we have to continue to, to tell our legislators and our regulators what's important here. And if, if social justice is the issue, we have to make it clear that there are still challenges to entering this industry. You know, I kind of find it crazy that some of these legislators and 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 the administrators who are looking at programs trying to develop, you know, initiatives to make sure that there is a equitable pathway forward don't even understand the history of what they're involved in. I mean, you know, when, when you when you speak to a legislator, I mean, I have very, very interesting. I um, testified before a judge in state recently uh, because of some issues that were going on with um, an application that was submitted. Uh, the application was submitted and literally these guys achieved one of the highest grade scores for their application. And there was no reason why they were not given a license other than the fact that the organization granting the licenses thought, mm, this can't be true. Why? Because 
on the application, they had like 14 different African-American business representatives in the community that were on this one application. The guy was going, I just don't believe it. And it's like, why? So we ended up going into court, sitting down and talking to the judge. And while I was, you know, testifying for the judge, I brought up, you know, in my conversations, I said, he asked me a question. One of the people asked me, well, Mr. Williams, why do you, why are you so interested in this industry? And I said, well, I'm, I'm so interested in cannabis the same way the federal government has been. You know, the government has a patent on cannabis that they issued themselves back in 2002. And a judge stopped the conversation and said, wait, excuse me? And I said, yes, sir, judge. You know, it's the patent number 6603507 that uh, has been on the book since two, 2002. And he literally typed away his computer at his judge's stand and went, oh, I like, kind of, I didn't know that he'd say those words, but he didn't know that. And I'm thinking to myself, now how the hell can you adjudicate anything with cannabis if you don't even know cannabis's history? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you see that pervasively. And part of it is because of the black market history of cannabis, right? You mentioned there's a long history in America of criminalizing it since the 1937 Right. Uh, marijuana taxation act since you know the the 70s and 80s when they started to further criminalize cannabis and really kind of lock in and, and, and assess these penalties for it so yeah there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of stigma and that's a lot of the work that we have to do too is just to continue to destigmatize it right as we see these major states and kind of bellwethers for the united states like new york and california enter enter the regulatory market in the the commercial i'm sorry the uh recreational market you're going to slowly see a reduction in that stigma, but that's part of it is like judges. Why, you know, why would they know about cannabis? All they know is how to, you know, lock people up for it, uh, essentially. And that's an over, overbroad statement. But, but I mean, you know, when, when you said we're going to see the destigmatization of it as we see more adult use laws pass, but I don't know if that's absolutely true, to be honest with you, because what happened is I think this industry has done itself a disservice. I mean, when it was time and it's still time for us to do as much as we can do to educate the masses, we're too busy trying to figure out how to make more money than actually trying to perpetuate the industry. And you do so through education. I mean, you, you take a look at, at the pharmaceutical industry. They're not crazy. They, they, why do we turn on, you turn on your television and you see advertisements all day long. Now, of course, certain states legis- legislated, you don't have the ability to advertise product but nothing is out there that stops or condemns you from doing documentaries, doing infomercials, doing PBS specials about the validity and efficaciousness of a plant that you could use that to educate the consumer and then have the consumer be the one that goes to the doctor and requests, why don't you know more information about this? That's what the, what the pharmaceutical industry has done for the last 30 years. They throw out a drug, shove it down your throat 10 times a day, hoping that the patient will go to the doctor and say, what is this? And the doctor says, oh, I just had a representative come by and had it right here, hand it to you. Why? Because homeboy is making a piece. Oh, for sure. But we don't, in this industry, aren't really doing our part and even trying to copycat that. And that's what I think we need to do, because that's what I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the biggest issues with with the cannabis industry today is education, education, education. Education is the key for all things. Right. It's a platform on which we can build and create a future, a better industry. But I'll also tell you that the lack of education 
uh, and that's you know still prevalent uh, stigmatization, as you just mentioned, is being exacerbated by the fact that there's a lot of disconnect even in the legalization movement, right? So, for example, taxes, the federal government is also collecting taxes from all cannabis operators, right? The IRS has rules that say even if you're doing a legal business, you still have to pay your taxes, right? When you when you're bringing up lawsuits that are always happening in the in, in the cannabis industry now, if you go into federal court, it becomes a question: Can you uh, do you have a property right? Do you have an interest in cannabis before federal court? Uh, you certainly can't go to the bank with it, right? So there's all these different intersections, state to state. What are the laws in Texas? As they differ from the laws in Florida, as they differ from the laws. In California, you know, cannabis is still a Schedule One drug federally, and people have been calling for deschedulization for years and years. So there's a there's an intense disconnect in the way all of these circles work. And at the bottom of the heap are you know the black and brown people who have criminal charges for dime bags and the like, you know, for over the last twenty years. And well, yeah, well, twenty years last, you know, Correct. eighty right. years since it was first decriminalized, we we looked at the entire incarceration rate. And I remember seeing a number once that said that close to 75 to 80 percent of all people arrested for cannabis were people of color. Correct. Six that's to ten times more that's, likely. Huh? That's not something that just happens. To that. That's something that was done deliberately. Why? Because cannabis was, you know, uh, uh, brought into prohibition when alcohol made its way out of prohibition because Anslinger lost his job as a prohibitionist for alcohol, decided to jump on the cannabis, even though while he was a prohibitionist for alcohol, he talked about the benefits of cannabis. A lot of people don't know that about Anslinger. Oh, yeah. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Yeah, and that I mean the anecdote you shared is 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 interesting, but that's one of the things that also is not being appropriately studied. And I'm sure you can appreciate this with your scientific and medical background, you know, as you've been dealing with things through your life. But realistically, we can't even get good studies on you know clinical trials on the effectiveness of cannabis because of the federal guidelines. Because of the federal here guidelines. in the United States, yet we flip the coin and fund fund research in Israel and other places, right. Right. doing the research that we should have been doing here. That's right. Right? I I find, I mean, let's talk a little bit more about just the whole idea of social equity. What what do you think that means to you? Just, I'd love to hear your explanation or your definition of it. Absolutely. Well, social equity is basically the pursuit of justice uh, via the regulated cannabis industry, right? The purpose is to remedy the harms that have, number one, been acknowledged, which again, in in the short shrift, if I gave it an overall sentence, is, is social equity good? Yes. You know, is it good enough? Not yet. Uh, but, you know, it, it is good that they're acknowledging the fact that these communities and by them, I mean, our, our federal government, the regulators are acknowledging that there have been harms done to certain communities. Right. There have been families torn apart, people incarcerated, lives ruined over nonviolent cannabis possession charges. So we are in a, reckon, a moment of reckoning. We're acknowledging, you know, that's probably not right. 
But as you said in your opening monologue, the, the majority of the industry is still by and large white. I mean, I was able to see one of the uh, social equity applicants, one of the first operators in Oakland who was on your show. And there are examples of people who are able to make it through. But, you know, what social equity is supposed to do is give a leg up to those people who have been you know, suppressed by the industry. And I'm not sure if we're yet giving a leg up, you know, certain places they give priority processing, they give limited access to capital. But even in the way a lot of these, uh, you know, legislative deals are structured and that you can't the cannabis advocate get can't give away enough equity to really get an attractive investment. So you're going to continue to see undercapitalization in social equity until we can figure out how to regulate and allow these people to get the, the money that they need. Well, you know, Leafly uh, magazine or Leafly website recently put out their equity score and they base social equity on eight points. I'm going to go through these with you. One, mandate automatic expungement of cannabis records. Two, establish equitable cannabis licensing systems. Three, safeguard the rights and access of medical patients. Four, allow home growing and regulate it reasonably. Five, dedicate cannabis tax revenue to healing, not harm. Six, gather a robust data and share it widely. Seven, reduce stigma through proactive programs. And eight, support cannabis career development opportunities. They then looked at all of the states and they've come up with scores for every state as to how they are participating in, you know, social equity programs. And, you know, you got states like Nevada that they have rated at the bottom of the list. Um, Alaska, Maine, Montana, South Dakota, I'm sorry, the bottom of the list. Uh, Michigan is, is close to the bottom of the list. Nevada is, you know, right up from the bottom. And then they put states like Colorado and New York at the pretty high up, close to the top, you know, Colorado, California, Illinois, New York, New Jersey, New Mexico. Um, what do you think about the way they've broken this out that think that this is these are the, the tenets that you need to at least address when it comes to social equity? Yeah, I mean, I can't challenge progress. And I think that those eight points are are an effective gauge. You know, I don't know if it's comprehensive. I don't know if that's the entire picture. And I think part of the process has to be an iterative process. We have to continue to evaluate the guides posts that we're looking to, the goalposts, you know, and if the goalpost has to right. move, we've got to stretch it out further. But, you know, expungement and the decriminalization is priority number one. It makes no sense to have people making millions hand over fist in stores that look like the Apple store, when there are literally still people in this country rotting in jail for, you know, the smallest skew on the on the, you know, businesses uh, sales table. Right. So people right. still in jail for small possessory amounts. Yeah, there are people in jail right now for having three ounces and you drive down the street. You got stores that have tons Pounds, and, and literally making legitimate money paying taxes not even just paying taxes on the, the federal taxes paying state taxes getting the benefits you know these are like legit businesses at this point and you still have people arrested i, I find it absolutely ridiculous that any state that has a has passed legislation does not allow for those businesses to bank within their state i just can't figure it out i know it's controlled by the fed so oh, therefore we open up a process and said well then all of our state run you know uh, um uh, smaller banks or or state-run uh, credit unions should be able to allow for banking. I mean, just that keeps them the money from being buried in the desert. Right. 
But it's still murky water, though. I mean, the bottom line is it's still federally illegal. So even if you're able to find a local bank or a local credit union or somebody who will take you, eventually, I've seen it happen just numerous times. People end up getting caught up in the system and then they're like, hey, you need to come pick your money up. We're no longer banking you because the bank doesn't want to lose their charter from the feds when they find out or from the FDIC when they find out you're doing cannabis activity. So that's still a huge, huge problem. Um, but in terms of the tax, you, you mentioned another point. I think the fifth pillar of, of the, that premise was that you have to tax to promote healing and not to promote further harm. And that kind of can go to like that question you asked about the expungement. Like, how do you do this? It takes resources to do that, right? Individually, if people want to get an expungement, they often call a lawyer and, you know, they got to pay a couple hundred bucks or something to get to get a lawyer to do that. If you're going to have the district attorney kind of do a fell swoop and handle all that, there's a lot of paperwork to process. There are revenues available from cannabis, but the fight is over. Well, where does this money go? Are you putting it into education programs? Are you putting it into programs to protect the youth from overexposure to cannabis? Some of those are stated goals, but a lot of times you're seeing that money go right back into law enforcement. And that's a critical question that we've been having, you know, uh, ostensibly forever, but at least since 2020 with the George Floyd situation and people have been calling for defund the police and et cetera. But if you really take note, and I specifically in California, a lot of the revenues are going back to the law enforcement for enforcement. Right. So is that like perpetuating the cycle that we've been through or is this helping us forge a new way forward? I, I venture it's a little bit of both and we need to figure out a way to make sure that if we're going to really prioritize social equity, we're doing it in a meaningful and in an earnest way. It can't be disingenuous. It can't be just to check the box. Right. I mean, you're right where the rubber meets the road in these conversations. What do you think about the Fed? I mean, what do you think? I mean, I personally think, you know, there were a lot of people who were were hoodwinked into believing that this particular administration was going to do a damn thing for anybody. First off, you got the president who still thinks cannabis is a gateway drug. And you got the vice president who made sure that more people were arrested under her tutelage as attorney general in California for, you know, minor cannabis violations across the state. And though even when she was running, she was trying to, you know, act cute and say, well, I've smoked before all this mm -hmm. kind of stuff. I remember that. Yeah. And then turn right around and hasn't done anything or made or kept good on the promises that they made while running. Because if you remember, they both said they were going to do something in the first 100 days. Well, 100 days has come and gone. And I know that this administration, I get it. I'm looking at the TV today and I saw, you know, the the congressional hearings and senatorial hearing on Afghanistan. But, you know, and we can argue about that for days because I, I mean, I, those are, but I mean, it just, it, it, it blows my mind that all of a sudden we give a damn about something that's been going on for 20 years. You know, but but let's let's skip that. It's the same thing right now for us to think that after they lie to you and make a promise, they really give a damn about something that's been going on now for 80 years. Hard for me to think. What do you think about the Fed? What do you think they're going to do? You know, that's a that's a that's that is the rubber meeting the road in terms of this. And I'll tell you, first of all, I'll hedge just a bit by saying, you know, cannabis is inherently political, too, on that local level. Uh, you're going to have to be connected with the right politics. And so because I'm helping people, I don't want to, you know, opine too bad or say how I feel about what the what the, you know, uh, federal administration is doing. What I will say is, you know, there has to be a change. I've had some cannabis mentors, people who've been practicing cannabis law, you know, for years, 20 years. They said, oh, we thought 20 years ago that they were going to deschedulize. So I think that it's a, a proliferated thing. I keep constantly they're getting promises like, oh, we're going to fix this. We're going to handle this. 
Why they haven't handled it, I have no idea, but I think we need to continue to put pressure on them. I think people like you, again, championing this issue, going and testifying before the judge. We also need to tell our legislators. We also need to write to the administration and say, hey, you know, this is a priority issue for us. You guys promised you have to deliver on your promise. And we do need federal deschedulization. That's needed to get tax relief. Cannabis taxes are, are called like basically gross taxes. You're not getting normal and ordinary business deductions. You're not able to deduct the cost of your vehicles. You're not able to deduct the cost of your sat your staff and their salaries, right? So that's or, even, or, yeah, or your build out or any of that stuff. None of that stuff, right? You're not getting the benefit of banking with, with security. So that is a security threat, number one, if you're sitting with all this cash that you're trying to bury. But number two, it just makes the business harder. So federal regulation has to happen. But I, I would imagine another thing about cannabis is the interstate commerce. That's where you go feds problem 101. Anybody shipping it out of state, right? Like the guys in California sending that Cali weed wherever, wherever. That's where you're going to get federal charges, right? And people are going to be arrested. Well, what about these big commercial operators? You know, those those retailers in New York, they want to get access to the top California marijuana cannabis. They can't because it's federally right. legal. So that has to be reconciled. Especially yeah, I, I find it that I find it just absolutely so disingenuous when you know you like, like the state of New York. It starts uh, the it passes a bill. Where do they think the seeds are going to come from? They Where are you going to get it? You're going to New York? Yeah, exactly. They got to come in the country. So <laughs> exactly. it's really just, we, just, we just let that go, right? That's right, well, we don't be afraid, exactly. But we're glad to see the incremental movement. You know, as I said, at the end of the day, I don't want to, there's two things I don't want to do. I don't want to down and say it's an impossible thing for the minority you know, community to get into because it's not. There are ways we can get into this. And number two, I don't want to say, oh, it's impossible challenges. These are just things we have to reconcile. And and looking at that, well, well, what do you think in again, what out of the states and out of the programs that you have seen uh in place, what programs do you think are working and why are they working? And which ones do you think aren't working? Uh, that's a really good question. Well, number one, I will say, despite the noble intention of the social equity program, I don't think that's working yet, right? Because it's this balance of are you giving the community a handout for nothing in terms of the economics? That doesn't make sense to anyone. But on the other hand, are you really giving them an opportunity? Are we equalizing the playing field? No, the playing field is not equal by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, to balance that out, I, you know, on balance, I'm not exactly sure which states are doing it right. But I know, in, in for example, in California, it's a, it's a local driven thing. So Oakland has its own program. Los Angeles has its own program. Los Angeles is a gridlocked mess, right? Uh Sacramento, where I'm based, it has a program. They have 30 retail licenses uh, available in Sacramento, right? They were There were some rumblings and problems. There was a moratorium, basically. After 30, no more dispensaries allowed. Well, then they did the social equity program, and they're like, well, what about all the social equity folks? So then they gave a wave of 10 more licenses. So 10 of those licenses went to the African-American, or pardon me, the minority community, right? The, the community that had been harmed. Have those 10 come online? Are they successful? No. Not to my knowledge, right? So because they didn't have access to funding, they don't have access to investment. Doesn't work like that, exactly. Right, and, and even as I said, even when you're trying to make the access to funding, there are, there are restrictions on the licensing and the transferring of the licensing, whereby you can't really get the type of funding that you want to come in. You know, even if you found the right investor. That's really absolutely incredible. Right? It's kind of crazy to me. I, I don't know. I mean, crystal ball me. Tell me what you think is going to happen in the next year, next two years. Crystal ball, we're going to see more states come online. We're going to see New York really blow it up super big and, and drive a lot of the commerce and a lot of the revenue. I think that the, the, the social equity community is going to continue to galvanize. We're going to continue to beat the drum. 
and say that we need actual substantive resources and we're going to have more conversations like this. And ultimately, there will be a pathway forward for minority businesses to come in. But I doubt that it'll be before uh, in classic United States of America style. There's not a long head start from some other folks. I mean, you know, you, you take a look at how divided this country is right now. Um, you know, especially when it comes to issues, when it, it just for issues of equity, period, in yeah. anything, not just cannabis, Correct. anything. But a lot of people, you know, fail to talk about it and don't want to talk about that. I don't like to bring it up either. But, you know, there were, were not rumors, but there was truth behind the fact that, you know, those insurrectionists that invaded the Capitol, there was quite a bit of cannabis being smoked inside that building during the January 6th, quite a bit. Never have heard it. A hundred percent. Don't doubt it at all. I I heard it, and you know I got to tell you, when you were looking at some of those videos, you could kind of see. Didn't look like people were smoking cigarettes pushing around in there. It looked like those clouds of smoke in various places that, and there were some people who went up online and tried to, you know, make a big deal about the fact that they got the smoke inside of the Capitol. Um, but. And I'm not trying to. I'm not throwing this out as a race thing, but you know, let's let's look back at those who insurrectionists that ran through the Capitol, the majority of whom were not minority. Yes. So this is a side of the country or, or a group of people who hate America the way it is now. Yet they like cannabis, right? Enough to be able to smoke it and take a chance of doing so and getting arrested in the Capitol. It's just weird to me, man. I, I I can't I can't juxtapose those things in my brain. I'm just trying to figure out, you know. And then at the same time, think to myself that some of those people who are in charge, you know, why are some of these states so slow to right the wrongs of cannabis convictions? Because are they angry that if they right the wrongs, you're going to somehow let people of color off the hook? I would think, though, I, I agree with that. I would think so. And, and the first thing I wanted to say is, you know, before even in the United States, there's been thousands of years of human therapeutic use of cannabis. Right. So any type of, you know, assumption like, oh, you know, it's only the, the black and brown folks who are smoking the cannabis or, you know, in the, in the past, oh, loco weed. That's absolutely incorrect. You know, what I started to find out was like when I started getting some of these, you know, rich white kids or something, they got they got all type of cannabis and then had it. You know, so I think what, what you're seeing in terms of this, you know, the left and the right or whatever the divide, you know, to agree with you and not highly politicizing it, but just looking at a conservative value versus a more liberal value. The conservative ideal seems to be that they don't, you know, the old cannabis is in, you know, improper and we don't want it. But really, they want to be able to monopolize the market. You know, that's what cannabis was a conservative ideal in America. Look, every one of our exactly. forefathers grew it. Exactly. You know, mandated. It was mandated in the early colonies, you know, to grow hemp and to grow cannabis. And those people weren't just growing hemp to make cl clothing. They were sitting on the back porch smoking, you know, a little hemp to relax. You know, so there, there was and, and, you know, there's rumor and I don't know whether or not we can get this, this truth behind it or not truth behind it. But, you know, some, you know, uh, uh, slave owners. You know, uh, who, who own those big, you know, plots of land? How the hell do you think you got people to stand out in the hot sun all day long and pick some damn cotton? Yeah, right. <laughs> they were giving them cannabis. That was something that was done. That was they were, you know, making sure that they had it. So, you know, the plantation owners. So, I mean, let's not let's not act like this is something that. I mean, first the entire Revolutionary Army was clothed in hemp uniforms. Yeah. 
you know, the entire George Washington's whole Mason camps, you know, all the canvas that they use for their attempts and their rituals that they use when they were, you know, uh, blowing incense. I want nobody incense, you know, mm-hmm. let's, get, let's get to fact, not fiction. I mean, that's part of what I talked about earlier when I was saying the education. We just seem to, you know, not want to tell the truth. We don't want to tell the truth about our past anyway, but this is no. one of those things we really try to hide the truth on. You know, and I, uh, until I was able to watch the episode uh, where you had the guest on talking about how to make a billion dollars in the hemp industry as well. But, you know, what I think is super interesting about the hemp is now that now hemp has been, again, federally legalized, right? So since 2017, as long as you have the arbitrary number of 0.03 less THC in your product, you can... Uh, you know, it's, you're supposed to be allowed to do, do interstate commerce and it's legal and all the like. I think that creates an interesting thing in cannabis, uh, the THC kind, because also in my practice, I still see people get arrested for cannabis. I have numerous people in my office right now who in the state of California where it's legal, either they had more than the legal possessory amount or they had this and that. But it really creates the question of well, what is cannabis versus what is hemp? You know, have that do the police test it every time? Do they know what they're buzzing people for? They used to smell it and say, Oh, now we come to arrest you. Well, it smells no probable cause because hemp smells just like THC cannabis. So Correct. So, and you know, I, I, tell me that 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 nose of that cop has been, you know, uh, uh validated and, and recognized as you know, I gotta you're gonna tell me that this cop went and took a test and shows me that he can figure out between point zero three and point you know, zero four. Come on. I don't know. It gives margins to squeeze black and brown or whoever they want. Right. Again, let's not let's not write the answer for them on the test if we're asking them the question. But, you know, you I do see the black and brown communities get squeezed because of that. You know, they come and they're grabbing stuff because it's just the old school method. It's like their amygdala is still stuck that if I see you with this flower, I'm going to get you. Well, hip is legal. You don't even know what this is. Correct. Yep. 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 No, I'm with you 100 percent. And, you know, I mean, as we see, I think. I think one of the things that's going to kind of help turn this around a little bit, maybe, is the, all the international players that are coming to the table. I mean, you know, right now you got China growing, you know, um, millions of acres of, of hemp, trying to see what they can do. And I wouldn't trust any hemp coming out of China if you pay me. However, they're growing it. You know, there's, there's, you know, I, I, I recently became a board member of a company out of. Um, Columbia, which is um, uh, One World Pharma, owned by uh, Isaiah Thomas. Um, And One World Pharma is right now publicly traded, along with a company that I'm getting involved with, not not, not publicly traded, another one I'm getting involved with out of Africa, which is called Afro Helios, which is a U.S. company in Africa. The one, the Colombian company has over a million hectares under contract million hectares of property under contract that they can grow cannabis and hemp in. They've got one of the only virtual, I mean, vertical licenses in the entire country of Colombia that they own. So they have the ability to grow, process, and export. Um, they can uh, process, and they, they're, they're exporting right now non-THC component parts. And in some countries that they are allowing, they're going to be exporting THC. Wow. Um, you know, that's the Colombian company and there's a, there's an African company. I mean, but, they, you know, you see this sprouting up everywhere. I think that the competition of the international markets going to force America to make some very, very swift changes. Especially as consumer demand increases in the United States. You know, that's one thing I'm, you know, I'm sure it's always been there. But now that we have, you know, stores that can generate tax revenue and we can get credible data, I think all signs are pointing to an increase in 
use or at least, you know, use that we know. So if you're going to be able to find high quality THC and CBD products that came from somewhere else, why not buy them, which will put pressure on the United States' market. Well, and I think you know that over the course of the last year and a half, while we've been sitting around doing this COVID, almost every state with a medical program has deemed cannabis an essential, essential. necessity. So therefore, that's what I find is absolutely ignorant. I mean, the fact that we can claim that it's it's essential, take the tax money out of it, but then try to do as much as we can to harm the industry. I just don't get it. Yeah. yeah. So now, I mean, uh, uh, can you outline what you think some of our solutions could be? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first of all, again, to be encouraging to minority operators or any operator, you know, I've worked with minority operators and and kind of these big big, highly well-capitalized uh, uh, companies. Number one thing is you have to have the right team around you. You know, you have to have a good attorney, frankly. It's such a fast-moving industry. You know, if you're going to be getting on the private side into the, and even for the public side, right? If you're a, a, a city or a county or a new state that's coming online, you really need the right analysis around it. You know, you need people from different perspectives to be able to share perspective. You need to have people with experience from other states. So just continued development of the industry through good professionals, good CPAs, good lawyers, et cetera. That's going to be important for those people who are operating. Uh, also, I think that it's very important that we continue to put public pressure on the regulators to settle the market and pay attention to social equity, right? New York, for example, just coming online, obviously a big deal, does have a really good stated goal that 50% of their licenses are supposed to be for minority and women-owned enterprises, Okay. But if it doesn't start working like that, we have to hold that accountable. Just to your point about, you know, the current presidential administration, if they're not doing what they're saying, we got to say something about that. Right. We can't kind of continue to let the status quo uh, go on and kick our heels up and say, all right, well, at least they have these programs. So I think well, look, I, I got to tell you something. If, if, if Trump allows Uday and Kuse to get into the business, his two boys get into this business, all of a sudden. He starts back in cannabis. I guarantee you that might be one of the things that puts his butt back in office. Yeah, that's going to cause a lot of pressure, and especially if Joe Biden and Kamala can't answer. Like, I thought you said you were going to do it, right? So it has to be continuous community pressure. Uh, the investment money has to truly support the interests of the operators. You know, there needs to be more opportunities. I hear African American community, or the, you know, that I'm in touch with all the time, looking for those economic investment opportunities. So we need to be able to do more to pool people's resources, to let more people into the industry, more quality job training, as you talked about, because there's a lot of brothers who they would love to just work up in the store, you know, black, brown, whoever, but give them an opportunity to become cultivators or distributors. And then I think the final piece, you know, that we as a community can rally around is that education that you're talking about. More conversations like this, you know, maybe going through the churches and explaining, you know, the benefits of the industry and why we don't want to stigmatize it within our own community. But this education has to continue to happen. And in all fairness, the long history of cannabis, the regulated market is very, very new. So we have to understand that and we have to continue to put the required attention to help it grow. Are you aware of the fact, do you, you know, Reggie Noble is a red man? Oh, yeah. Do you, are you aware that red man just got federally sanctioned the National Cannabis Party. Do you know that? I did not know that they had the National they, Cannabis they, Party. They just, they, they just got a federally sanctioned National Cannabis Party. Uh just happened in the last month. And I definitely want to make sure that my office, when, 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 when Melanie, who reached out to you, 
when she when I we she and I talk, I'm gonna make sure she sends you an email to give you some information about it. But I definitely think that's something that you, you know, I don't know if, if you're interested in in helping them out as they move this this initiative forward. But there will be a now you have a national party that can be registrant in every state when it comes to any election. That party can be represented on the ballot as or and let people know that we are the people who represent cannabis around the country. Then we got to get this thing moving. Well, first of all, Redman is the icon. So, I mean, just the idea that he's doing what he's doing and representing cannabis and has done it so well for so long uh, and really being the cool guy he is, that's a, that's number one. Number two, I'd be honored myself. Any, anything you want me to do, any any connection we can draw, I'm all ears for it. So I'll be on the lookout for that. But yeah, that is the point. We have to continue to have the conversation. We have to have leaders who are stepping up and you know representing all sides of the industry. Now, you're currently, are you currently partnered with Matt Barnes? On a project, can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely, yeah. So Matt is a good friend. Uh, started off as a client of mine in in the cannabis space. Uh, he's really doing a lot of work in terms of supporting the initiatives of the social equity applicants. So you know, we have a few deals where we are working with social equity applicants. On, you know, kind of on the private side to bring investment to the table to help them get their stores and their opportunities online. And we're looking for more of that. Right. Our goal is to continue to go. Locale to locale. We're starting in Northern California, but eventually uh, opening up as a multi-state operator so that everywhere these these businesses are coming online, they can get kind of that celebrity backing that's always important. It helps get eyes to your project, but also access to the capital. But at the really core of it, I'll say kudos to Matt. And obviously what I do, the spirit of it has to be right, too. You see so much predatory stuff in the industry and I'm not. I'm not claiming what was me or oh, we're the good guys, but I am simply saying, you know, it's good to have somebody who really has the right spirit behind it and truly wants to see people succeed while all of us do well. Well, you know, I gotta, I'll also I'll not only get you some information about the uh, you know National Cannabis Party, but also about one of the projects I'm working on because I just had a long conversation last night with, you know, uh, the founder and um, talking about trying to see if we could bring some more minority representation to the table with this particular company, which is getting ready to, I think, you know, blow up. I, I really do. I really believe they're going to blow up really big um, worldwide because we're working on not just cannabis hemp in the consumption way, but, you know, cannabis hemp, uh, hemp, hemp has, you know, over 250 uses and uh, 2,500 no, different uses and, there's so much that we can be doing right now that we're not doing. Um, so uh, I'm going to get you some information about that also and see if you're interested in that. Um, if there's any way somebody wanted to reach out to you, how did they get to you? Absolutely. My website is josiahyounglaw.com. So you can email me at josiah at josiahyounglaw.com. Don't hesitate to uh, you know, go to the website. My phone number is 916 706 zero one three six uh, i'd love to have conversations about this all day on instagram i'm uh, josiah young law at josiah young law excellent my friend great i mean I, that's that's really good now thank you for being here and being a part of the show today because i think it was really really uh, you know very very informative for lots of my listeners and viewers and you know they're going to be psyched uh, you'll probably get a lot of them reaching out to you asking for some help and asking what we can all do together and I'll keep you in mind as we move forward. And I, I, if I see any places that synergistically I can put you together, I'd love to do that. Uh, such an honor. I really appreciate it. You know, uh, I hope that we can continue to educate and inform your audience. I again want to give you kudos for what you're doing now today and your history all the way back to thank you for your service to this country. You know, you really are a leader. You really got the right idea. You know 
what it is. So I'd be honored to, to, you know, team up with you and help out where I can. Absolutely, sir. Well, I thank you so much. And I want to thank all of my viewers for tuning in today and uh, listening to Josiah Young and, and understanding that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done. You need to not just sit back and, you know, rest on the fact that, let's say, an initiative was passed. Let's get out there and make sure these initiatives that were passed are at least implemented in some way that does justice, not only to the industry, but to all of those who want to participate. Josiah Young, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today, and thank you for tuning in. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.